When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amir Sayyad Abdi, the host of the channel. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Professor Vivian Nunn Halloran about her book, The Immigrant Kitchen, Food, Ethnicity, and Diaspora, which was published in 2016 by the Ohio State University Press. Vivian is professor of English at Indiana University, Bloomington. Vivian, thanks for accepting my invitation and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Uh, to start off, Vivian, could you please tell us a bit about your uh, personal and research background, please? Yes, I am a professor of English at Indiana University, and I got here um, many years after I arrived in the mainland of the United States. I first moved from Puerto Rico, where I was born and raised, to the United States in 1987, and I finished high school in Colorado. I pursued my bachelor's um, in Colorado, the University of Colorado at Boulder. And then I did my PhD at UCLA and uh, the job at Indiana is my first. And I liked it so much I had stayed. Oh, lucky you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there is often a story behind every book, Vivian. What, what's the story behind yours? Uh, I mean, how did the book come about? Well, it was very interesting because as I was finishing my my PhD, I had two small children. And one of the few things we could watch together, my family and I, was the Food Network, which was just starting to um, broadcast at that time. And I became fascinated by hearing how people talked about their lives through the meals they like to prepare or consume. And once I moved to Indiana, I started seeing that there were lots of memoirs that were featuring food, but also including recipes. And those became kind of stress relief activities for me to cook something out of the memoirs I was enjoying reading uh, to see how well I liked what the authors celebrated in the pages of their books. And that became then a a corpus of, of works that I mined for my second book project, which is what The Immigrant Kitchen is. Um, and in this book, you examine texts that are uh, memoirs, but also mm-hmm. have recipes. And you refer yeah. to this text throughout the book exactly as that, memoir with recipes. You kind of keep it very simple. You don't use terms such as you know, culinary autobiography or gastrography or uh, food memoir or, I don't know, food war, which are terms that uh, other studies that have uh, examined similar texts have used. Uh, and I assume the choice to keep it simple, to refer to this genre as uh, memoir with recipes. 
has been intentional. But what was the reasoning behind that? Yeah, it was an intentional choice, and it was partly to emphasize how uh, all the memoirs, even though they, they span a range of genres, really, of, of topics and of narrative voices, engaged in what I would call now, I didn't have this vocabulary at the time that I was writing, but I would now call it, you know, virtual hospitality. They were opening the doors and inviting us to their kitchen or their dinner table through the recipes. And so what drove me to examine this, this particular um, set of books was the fact that I could cook along. And then sometimes I could discover that authors who talked about important meals they enjoyed at a restaurant when they were four or five years old had absolutely no way of knowing what the actual recipe the chefs used at that time were. And so I began to investigate the truth claims that authors would use the recipes to support. And it became clear to me that recipes played a slightly different um, role within a narrative about someone's life than, for example, photographs depicting the author at a young age or with relatives or some key moment in their in their lives. Somehow, when you claim the the truth uh, value of a recipe, people don't question it, and it became very clear to me that some of the authors I looked at cook, and some of the authors I, I examined don't, but had recipes that if you tried to make them, there's no way that you would end up with something edible or appetizing because there was some key step missing. Mm. But uh, from a methodological aspect of, uh, you know, uh, the work, how did you decide whether a book qualifies as memoir with recipes? I mean, what, what, what is that all of these books have in common? And also, how does migration come in? Oh, well, that, that was an interesting thing. The, the third element there was I looked for books that were written by people who already had built-in audiences. Either they were writers already before writing their memoirs, so either they wrote fiction or plays or um, cookbooks, or else they were some sort of public figure that already had an audience, so they had an imagined interlocutor to whom they were addressing their narratives. Now, in terms of having the recipes, I looked for key ways in which the recipe enhanced or encapsulated something that represented a key moment in someone's life. And it had to be in the cooking and then in the eating that the memoir became this act of hospitality, right? So it opened up something to the reader, a space in which the reader could themselves prepare the food and imagine uh, enjoying the interaction we so value about reading, but very in a very embodied way by consuming the same food that was so significant to someone else. And... Um... Each chapter of your book deals with a different set of uh, memoirs with recipes, uh, a, sort of a different theme, if you like. Yes. Uh, why did you decide to do that? And more importantly, how did you come up with these particular themes and uh, with a grouping your texts? Well, that took the longest. And I, I basically went back to the experience of migration or immigration. And so the writers that I discuss in the book either immigrated to the United States themselves, or they were the children or grandchildren of immigrants to the United States. 
And one of the reasons that the chapters make sense across cultural or cuisine lines is because this, what they have in common is a similar experience of migration. So for example, there's a chapter in which adult children accompany their parents to the, their home country. And so suddenly a dynamic that had been marked by having the child be the translator, be the quote unquote native speaker of English, uh, they find themselves in a circumstance that's unfamiliar to them, a geography that's new, even though they heard about it all their lives. And they're hearing their parents speak with such ease and be unaccented, not having to translate their thoughts, just be able to function in a, in a, in a more immediate way than they saw them interacting through the, uh, English. And so it gave them a greater appreciation for how much difficulty, just cultural, intellectual, emotional, it is to pick up your life and start over in a new place. And food then becomes the way in which the parent and the child can connect at a place where the child is in the unfamiliar, not expert position. And, and that was characteristic of one experience of diaspora. I have another chapter, for example, in which recent immigrants to the United States then go abroad to yet another place because their um, partners or um, spice, you know, spouses have employment in that other area. And so that notion of having an, a tenuous claim to a US citizen identity then becomes heightened when you're in a third space. And the only way to make sense of all the various different cultural shifts is through cooking and learning to cook and sharing food with other people. So I use the, the common denominator as the experience of migration or, or being an immigrant in a particular context. And is it why you uh, choose to focus on the ethnicity part of uh, the diaspora experience? Because your book is subtitled Food, Ethnicity and Diaspora. So it would be safe to assume that ethnicity is a large, if not dominant part of your focus in the book, right? Yeah, well, it's interesting because um, in the United States, at least, we assume that when someone tells you they are from X country, that that nationality carries a lot of weight in defining how they experience their culture that is not American. Mm. But what we know is that within different cultures, there are waves and, and, and uh, layers of migration and identities that are more complex. So that talking about ethnicity allows for a better, more nuanced understanding of what someone thinks of their family's experience of moving, of, of being away from a home space and of performing the identity that ties them to one another through the cooking and eating of food. And so, you know, in we have a memoir that's written by someone from um, Singapore, but they are Han Chinese ethnicity. So it's different than if they were of uh, East Indian ethnicity and living in Singapore. So, so the whole point there is that just because you were born in a geographic location, it doesn't mean that that tells us all there is to know about your culture or your experience of culture or your situation within a given society. So to assume that just nationality would convey how you eat or what you like to prepare would be to miss out on a lot of, of nuance and complexity. Indeed. Um, and kind of a follow-up to um, what you just said uh, with, with the exception of chapter one 
where all the authors of uh, the memoirs with uh, recipes that you discuss are males, male authors. The majority of the works that you use in your other chapters are written by female authors. So um, I was wondering about the intersection of the immigrant kitchen, not only with ethnicity, but also the gender. Mm-hmm. I specifically chose not to uh, try to artificially balance the chapters in terms of gender representation, partly because there is a paucity of uh, food memoirs by male writers, um, but also because I wanted to have the common denominator be that experience of, of displacement or of immigration and, and that kind of thing. I thought it was interesting uh, in that food as a profession is something we assume or associate males uh, gravitate towards and that the recognition of women is only as you know cooks not as chefs but when it comes to cooking for the family oftentimes what we see is that a book may be about um, someone's grandmother cooking or someone's uh, father's cooking, but it's written by a woman or a man. So, so even though the gender of the writer is something that's stated at the outset, the, the cooks, the ancestors, the culinary ancestors uh, that they invoke are from a variety of genders. And so it's, it's not necessarily predictive of their entire experience. Something like the chapter that does focus on being an expatriate tends to highlight that women are often displaced when their partners take jobs overseas. And so that's an interesting kind of dynamic. But by and large, I thought it was, it was good to acknowledge gender, but not thematize it in the selection of, of text. Hey. Um, um, and as we um, kind of covered this, your book has different themes in a chapter. And unfortunately, we don't have time to go over every single chapter, but one chapter that I'm particularly interested to hear more about from you is uh, your last chapter on uh, diasporic inventions, where you use uh, Eric Hobsbawm's notion of invention of tradition to discuss certain cultural traditions through family recipes. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you tell us a bit about how these invented traditions in immigrant kitchens look like? And the reason that I'm interested in this uh, in particular is that you begin the book by uh, telling the story of your first Thanksgiving in America. Yeah. And you also conclude the book by, uh, as you put it, talking turkey. Yeah. And Thanksgiving might be one of the most important, if not the most important, uh, invented tradition in the US and one that has food at its center too. Uh, so again, could you tell us a bit about how these invented traditions in immigrant kitchens look like? Yes, I really wanted to showcase Thanksgiving because it's, it's as you pointed out, a food-centric holiday that's secular, even though it invokes the, the idea of, of giving thanks to some higher power for the good things that have happened. I wanted to look at it in the larger context of things like Kwanzaa, which were invented, but to serve a purpose and which incorporate food as part of a a ritual of healing and affirming an ethnic identity as, you know, Black or African American, certainly Afro-descended peoples in the United States to provide a sense of continuity and a 
a mindful celebration of a ritual that's meant to, to affirm an identity that's otherwise always under um, attack in the United States. I also, however, discussed something as silly as uh, the Festivus uh, ritual, which both does and does not exist in real life, but yes. for, which, <laughs> for which there are some recipes in, in one of the creator's memoirs. So I thought it was an interesting way of, of pushing the idea uh, of what it means to have a constructed tradition, because in all all traditions are to some degree invented. There, there's nothing natural about ritual or observance. We just all agree to participate in these things. And so the, the role that food plays within these observances was intriguing to me and to see what one bequeaths down the generations, what, what culinary lore uh, is important for you to pass down, even if it's not something you enjoy eating. That that dissonance between what people prepare and what they actually eat in the Thanksgiving holiday still is something I, I continue to be uh, fascinated by. Yes, it is fascinating in, indeed. And, um, you know, that Festivus episode in Seinfeld that you talk about in the book is, <laughs> is actually one of my favorite ones. And I have this, I mean, we have this, my partner and I have this ritual of watching that episode on Christmas Day. And my mm -hmm. partner actually has a t-shirt that uh, reads, uh, Festivus for the rest of us, uh, as yeah, as Frank Costanza <laughs> yeah. uh, puts it. Uh, but that's really uh, interesting and very fascinating, and you you know write it uh, fantastically in the book. Uh, do you identify as an immigrant, Vivian, yourself? You know, that's a very interesting question because I have a lot of experiences that really overlap. But I'm technically because I'm Puerto Rican, I'm a I'm a migrant. Uh, and I moved from Puerto Rico to the United States, but Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States. Uh, but I grew up speaking Spanish. I grew up uh, in a tropical climate. And so a lot of the things I discovered about living full-time in the mainland United States when I first moved to Colorado uh, resonated a lot with the memoirs I was reading in how one discovers oneself and reimagines oneself in a different language, in a different set of cultural norms. Uh, for me, a lot of it had to do with volume. One is quieter when one is in the mainland US than in the island where one is very loud. Um, and we can't assume a common or a shared set of, of gestures and understanding. So a lot of what the first few years I experienced living in the mainland US had to do with acquiring a whole new visual and, and cultural lexicon of what what gestures mean, what traditions mean, what what kind of people mean. You know, I had a hard time understanding that how are you doing didn't actually mean how are you doing something specific, but just a general greeting about how you how well, you know, how do you feel? What are you like? And I really am like, how am I doing what? Uh, so that's <laughs> One example, you know, so I, I can't claim the legal status. I did not have to wait for a certain amount of days or any kind of um, documents to allow me to hop on a plane and arrive in the United States. And that is something that takes a lot of money and uncertainty and people can get taken advantage of. So I don't want to minimize the fact that immigration is a huge decision, but I did go across cultures and languages in a similar way to what a lot of the writers I discussed did. Um, there's obviously a lot more in the book and I encourage listeners to pick up a copy, but 
before we wrap up the interview, uh, I'd like to ask Vivian whether you're working on something right now, or are you thinking about doing research on a particular topic in the near future? Well, as it happens, I am revising the manuscript for my third book, and that oh. one looks <laughs> at the role of uh, people of Caribbean heritage in the United States as they make claims for shaping the cultural and political landscape of the United States right now. So uh, it has chapters on political biographies, on young adult fiction, on musical theater. Uh, one of the texts I spent some time discussing is the musical Hamilton. So just the fact that people from a variety of Caribbean backgrounds, Anglophone, Francophone, and Hispanophone are making a claim to being active contributors to American culture as it's unfolding right now is exciting to me as a Caribbeanist, and it's something I wanted to explore in more depth. And uh, when should we expect to read this really exciting project, Vivian? <laughs> Hopefully late 2022. I'm turning in revisions in February to my publisher. It's also Ohio State University Press. And hopefully you'll have it by the end of 2022. Okay, hopefully. You're not thinking about writing your own uh, memoir with recipes? Not yet. You know, one of the ironic things I should point out is that after writing Immigrant Kitchen, I began having all sorts of food allergies. <laughs> and so I'm trying to get used to what I can and can't eat at the moment. But I, I love memoirs as a genre. So if I can find something in, in my uh, life experience that I think other people would benefit from knowing, I'll try my hand at it. Okay, so that was a good advice for listeners in case you want to, you know, stay away from allergies. Don't write a book about Immigrant Kitchen. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Any further comments? Anything you want to add, Vivian? Um, pick up a food memoir. Uh, it's so engaging to find out about other people's lives. And it's one of those social taboos that nobody knows quite how to negotiate. It's asking about people who are new to the country where you live, about their experience and what brought them there. So reading these memoirs allows you to satisfy that curiosity and allows the immigrants themselves a chance to shine and tell you why they wanted to join you in the country where you are. I think that's one of the most um, attractive elements of the memoirs that I discuss. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show, Vivian, and speaking with me today and sharing your insight and your work with our listeners. I really enjoyed reading your book, but I enjoyed it even more talking to you about it. It was an absolute pleasure. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.